well-regarded novelist and short story writer made this statement, there will come a time when you believe everything is finished. That will be the beginning. What a great thought for looking at Mark 16 this morning. Just at the moment when it seems everything is over, And everything is finished. The disciples are mourning and they're weeping. They're locked away, shut up in a room, hiding from the authorities. And it seems like all of their hopes and their dreams, their ideas of what Jesus was and was going to be, has all been thrown away and was all for nothing and everything seems finished and over. But the reality was that was just the beginning of everything. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, that you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. They went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, He appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick. They will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere. While the Lord worked with them, confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So we've come to the end of the Gospel of Mark. Or is it just the beginning? I think we see in the story that it is the beginning of the ministry, really, of these disciples. As Jesus appears to them and he proclaims the need for them to go out and to preach everywhere, we come to the end of this one part of the story. And don't we love this in stories? I know we've got some story readers out there where you know when you finish the story, you know it's not over. And that's what's happening here in the Gospel of Mark. Although this comes to a conclusion, and we finished the study we're doing on the Gospel of Mark, we'll do that this morning, we know the story continues on well beyond this. And that's just a little bit like life in general. Some of you left camp yesterday, I ended. 
Some of you for the last time. And that's hard. Some of you have graduated. You've graduated college. Maybe you're going to start working soon. There are all these moments in life that seem like the finality. But if we stop and think, and particularly when we look back at those moments, they're actually just the beginning. And I believe that is true in so many aspects of life. I remember many of those in my own life, this sense of finality that came at various moments, whether it was my high school graduation or whether it was leaving camp for the last time or graduating college or whatever any of those were. And some of those, we have mixed emotions about those. I, I remember some of you just experienced some of this so you can understand this. I remember being at camp my last year and leaving and there was this sense of joy that I had. I really wasn't all that upset. And one of the things that really was a huge benefit to me looking back on all of this is that with the exception of my high school graduation, Katie was with me at every finality. She was with me at camp. She was with me at college. Every time I graduated from college, she was there. We've experienced all of these things together. And so you have friends or you have spouses who are with you in all of these moments that are endings, that are at the final moment of something, that are actually just beginnings. I remember when we were graduating from Florida College, we had uh, a moment in, in Sutton Hall where we all had a, a yearbook signing, right? This last day we would all be together. It seems like this is such a heavy moment. And yet, a few days ago, and I'm not saying it wasn't a heavy moment, it wasn't difficult, but a few days ago, some of our great friends were over at Brad and Lydia's, and not only was it just us, we watched all of our children running around playing together. See, it was just the beginning. It seemed like the end, but it's so much bigger and grander later on. Do we not see that in the things that we experience in life? The story wasn't over. It was just starting, and that's what we're seeing in Mark 16. And there's all kinds of textual things that I don't really want to get deep into this morning about Mark 16, but I do want to bring them up, especially for our young people who may encounter some of this at various times in their life as they go to school or wherever else, that in many manuscripts, the, the story ends in verse 8, which is rather puzzling. Uh, the women, it says they're trembling, they're astonished, and they go out and they say nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Story's over. It seems like a strange way to end. And as we look back at the rest of Mark 16, it's kind of a summarizing of the things that then take place after. Now, let me give you a short synopsis of why I'm okay with that being there since I brought it up. Uh, a lot of the early manuscripts, most people aren't sure what was supposed to be after verse 8. We don't actually know. It's one of the few times within the New Testament where there's some ambiguity here. They know something's supposed to be there. We just don't know exactly what it is. This is the most dominant um, it's extant example that it means it still exists in manuscripts of what's supposed to be there. And so that's why it's there. And most of your Bibles, probably every single one of your Bibles has a notation that says something like this. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 through 20. So here's the thing. Nothing in Mark 16, 9 through 20 is new, is different from anything else we can find in the rest of the New Testament. There's no new doctrinal teaching. It all goes along with everything else. In fact, it's some of the same stories, the men on the road to Emmaus, right? There's a little section about them. It doesn't say who they are, but that's clearly the story. Um, everything that's here is something you can find somewhere else. Some even think that this is Mark later coming back and adding a summary onto the end here, and people knew it was supposed to be there, but it got lost. That Some of those manuscripts even leave a space. It's blank. 
which you would not do. It's very expensive in antiquity to write anything, and you would not just leave blank space just because. So that's a little short textual criticism synopsis of why you should not be worried about this, and now why I'm going to use the whole text this morning, even though it has that little notation there in your Bible. Because whether or not Mark actually wrote this in the very beginning, it does summarize what's going on here in the text, and at the very least, it's a reaction to what we find in Mark 16, 1 through 8. And I think that's really important, considering where we're going to go forward here in the story. The gospel stories end when there is so much more that's coming after. They are only the beginning of this story, and we can see that very clearly when we get to a book like Acts, for example, that then traces 28, 30 years after the death of Jesus and gives all kinds of information about what's happening as the gospel is being proclaimed all over the world. But what we see here in this text, as I use this play on words here in the text, the sun had risen. And this is not new to me. All you have to do is go back to Malachi chapter 4, and you see Malachi, the messenger, he uses this same play on words in verse 2. But for you who fear my name, those who believe in me, that's an important idea, unlike the ones who are going to be judged and condemned because they don't believe in me, those who fear my name, the sun, S-U-N, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Every morning when you wake up and the sun is rising, it is a sign of God's healing. It's a sign of God's deliverance. When that light begins to peak above and you have the freshness of a new day, of a new morning, it should bring to remembrance the reality that when the Messiah came out of the grave, that is the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings for those who fear the name of God. These ladies don't know that yet. They're making their way to the tomb. They're unaware of exactly what's about to take place, but they come after the sun had risen. Both S-U-N sun and S-O-N sun had risen. And they're now present at the tomb, wanting to anoint his body for burial, but of course he's no longer there. This morning I want us to just take a few minutes to highlight what this resurrection story tells us. What is it that this story highlights when we look at these different characters and the different people who show up and the way this is all talked about? The Gospel of Mark has a a few particular themes and emphases throughout the entire Gospel. One of those is discipleship, and we've been looking at that really through our whole study. Another is authority. That's something that's taking place even in this chapter, this last chapter. And the last is not understanding Jesus. All of these are present. Who is Jesus? The disciples are trying to figure it out. And even in Peter's confession in chapter 8, when he professes that he is the Christ, he doesn't yet fully understand what that means. And even in this moment, we saw in the reading this focus on belief. They don't believe it. They would not believe it first. They do not believe it next. And then Jesus chastises them for their unbelief. So they don't fully understand Jesus, at least until this moment when they recognize he actually has come out of the grave. He actually has been delivered by the power of the Father. And when I see, first of all, in Mark 16, as we're reading this text and thinking through it, is that it is a proclamation of divine trustworthiness, faithfulness. And let me show you a particular part where that is brought out. Number one, it says, as he's speaking, the young man is speaking to the women, He says, don't be alarmed. This is verse 6. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, 
that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Just those little words, just as he told you. Jesus does a lot of foretelling leading up to this moment. Actually, all the way back in chapter 8, he begins his death predictions. So 8 and verse 31 and following, and then chapter 9 and verse 30 and following, and chapter 10 and verse 32 and following. It's all these little tight units, all of them at the beginning of the 30s. So 8, 9, and 10, you can remember it that way. The three death predictions of Jesus, where he doesn't only predict his death, but also says after three days, he will be raised up, just as he told them. Not only that, but when you go back to chapter 14 and verse 28, this is the reference specifically being made here. He told them when this would happen, he would be raised up and he would go before them to Galilee. And now this young man appears to the women and says, hey, go tell the disciples he's going to Galilee just as he told them he would. And a lot more subtly in the text, when it says that he had arisen, he is not here most English translations, unfortunately, put that in the active voice. Uh, now, if you have an NET or maybe a Holman uh, Christian Standard Bible, it'll say he has been raised, which is accurate. Um, I'm not sure why in the ESV or New American Standard or some of these other versions they use the active voice, but it is, in Greek, a passive voice, which means he is being acted upon. And implied in the statement is the acting and the power of God, that he has been raised up by the power of the Father. God is implied in this text going forward from this point on. So not only do we have the statements of Jesus himself, where he has proclaimed things and he has predicted things that are now all happening just as he told them they would, now we have the implied presence of the Father who has raised Jesus up from death. He is risen. He is no longer here. God's plan is brought to fulfillment. And last time we didn't talk about Psalm 22. There just wasn't really time with the angle I took on chapter 15. But what I do want us to understand in chapter 16 is Jesus referenced to Psalm 22 when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you continue reading that text and it is a proclamation of trust by the psalmist and the deliverance of God is now being fulfilled in this moment when he has been raised up by the power of God. Jesus felt the abandonment. He felt the sorrow. He felt the isolation. But in the end, in his reference to Psalm 22, he never gave up on divine faithfulness. He trusted the Father, and now he is raised up by the power of the Father. And so the story begs us to live with a sense of divine faithfulness. No matter what's happening in our life, no matter the sorrow or the grief or the pain or the difficulty or whatever it is we're facing, it's asking us, it's urging us to trust in the faithfulness of God through all of it. It's showing us a man who is beaten and hung on a cross and killed and just days later is resurrected to new life by the power of God. If you will only believe and be baptized, you will be saved, he says later in the text. It's a statement about belief that we'll come back to later at the end of the sermon this morning. In contrast to that, it is a story about human weakness, which is something we are prone to stay away from, to stand back from. We don't like to talk about human weakness. We don't like to, to show failure and talk about what that looks like as humans, but that is prolific all throughout the text leading into the resurrection story. 
even within the story itself. We are comfortable with it, I notice, when we sing our songs in Christ alone. Right? We, we sing the song professing the fact that we have been wicked and sinful and guilty and we need the power of God and we need the power of His Son. And so we will confess these things in song, but it's so difficult, it seems, for us to admit human weakness. And yet in the resurrection story itself, it is filled with human weakness. I don't mean that necessarily in the sense of sin, although that is true as well, but just in, in reaction to what's taking place and to going into the moment itself, these women, that there's human weakness has to do with being illogical, with being fearful. These are all part of the human condition and things that we all have to deal with. And these women certainly are dealing with this in this moment. The women don't consider how they'll get the stone rolled away until they're already almost there. That's illogical. This is a massive stone. Three women cannot roll it away. And yet they're on their way, bringing all these heavy spices as well, discussing, how are we going to get the stone rolled away? This is human weakness. This is not planning. This is not considering the moment. Divine faithfulness is just the opposite. God has planned every moment. Everything has fallen in line. Everything that's taken place has played into his hand to accomplish his will. And I'm not in this moment trying to be harsh on these ladies who recognize halfway there that they aren't prepared. I'm just pointing out the reality that as humans and the way that we live and the things that we do, we often don't consider the whole picture. We don't see it all before it starts to happen. And so we get down the road and we realize there's all kinds of things we've missed and haven't considered, just like these ladies on their way to the tomb. How are we going to even get in? But of course, God takes care of it. And the stone is rolled away. And when they come to the presence of this young man who is an angel, he's wearing heavenly garb, he is in white raiment, just as Jesus when he's transfigured and his clothes become whiter than any launderer could get them. And they come into this guy's presence, the typical response, so this is not different than anything else we see in Scripture, is they are terrified, they are frightened. Again, this is not sinful, it's just part of the human condition, of human weakness, particularly in the presence of the divine. And my point in all of this is just realizing how desperately we need God, how desperately we need the risen Savior and His answer for our life and His will and not our own. They come into the presence of this young man and he tells them what Jesus had already told them multiple times, that he would be raised on the third day. He wouldn't be there anymore. He was going to go before them to Galilee. All of these things, this is not new information, it's just now coming to them in new perspective. As they walk up and the tomb is empty, and the grave clothes are laying there, but there's no Jesus. And they see this strange figure talking to them. And after they're told to go and tell the disciples, it says they run, they flee the tomb, trembling and astonished. In Greek, the word is ecstasis. They are ecstatic and not such a positive way. They're frightened out of their minds and they run. And even though the young man told them to repeat to the disciples everything that they'd already heard before, but just to remind them that Jesus is going to be resurrected, he's going to go before you to Galilee, they run away in terror, and it says they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, we know that's not the end of the story. It goes on, and eventually they do tell. 
in the other Gospels even. We can go see where later on they do go tell the disciples. This is no threat to God's plan. I'm just pointing out the reality of human weakness that we don't always do the things that we ought to do whether it's a sinful thing or it's a non-sinful thing, just something in life, that there is weakness that, that is embedded within humanity that desperately needs the faithfulness of the divine God. And this human weakness is not meant to push us down or make us feel bad as much as it is meant to help us see the contrast between the human and the divine. To emphasize the power of what God has done for us in Christ, that God has done the unbelievable. That with God, all things are possible. So that when these ladies walk to the tomb, fully expecting that stone to be there, it's not there anymore. And fully expecting Jesus to be laying in there when they got the stone finally rolled away, Jesus is not in there because God is not limited in the same way man is. And he calls Jesus out of the grave. And he brings him to new life. So the story that seemed completed, that seemed over and finished, now is brought back. Which brings us to the last concept within Mark 16, where I think whoever wrote this section, whether it was Mark coming back to write it, or someone summarizing what's going on here in Mark 16, the emphasis is on the most important facet of what's taking place here, and that is how we respond to the risen Lord. We can boil that down into one word, belief. And as we read through this text and we see what's taking place here, it is hinging around the idea of belief and unbelief. And so the story is urging us to believe in Jesus and to accept Jesus and to follow Jesus and ultimately to proclaim Jesus because we believe that he rose from the dead. All of that is part of what's going on at the last part, the second half of Mark 16. And if your Bible, if you mark your Bible, which I highly suggest doing, you can go through and mark any time where it says the word believe or belief, and you will see this huge emphasis on this idea. And so Mark 16, 16, a verse that often gets quoted and used to talk about the importance of baptism, is actually embedded within a huge context all about the importance of believing in the risen Lord. It is not a text that is only isolated to be used to prove to somebody they have to be baptized for the remission of their sins to be saved. It can help do that, but what it's really doing here is showing the contrast between belief and unbelief and what that looks like and what the power of belief actually can do in your life. The women come and tell the disciples they would not believe it. I don't know, maybe I make too much of the verbiage here. I see a little journey that's taking place in the disciples' recognition. At the very beginning, when the women came, it says they would not believe it. They refused to believe. It didn't matter what the lady said. It didn't matter what they told them. They would not believe what they're being told. Now, now keep in mind, they had been told by Jesus three times, at least, probably more, that he was going to be killed and he'd be resurrected on the third day. They've already been told this information. And when the women come, this shouldn't be groundbreaking info that they're now getting. We didn't know that. No, Jesus had told them. And they would not believe. Man. Human condition, again. The inability sometimes to believe what should be fully believable. The two men come who were on the road and Jesus appears to them. They go back, they run back, and they tell the rest that they did not believe them. It seems to me, at least, that they're softening a little. They don't believe it, 
but it's almost like they're starting to consider it a little bit more. There's not necessarily a refusal here. I mean, this is the second time they've heard. But I, I am interested in what happens when Jesus appears to them. And he rebukes them for their unbelief. Man. These guys have been with him for years. They have seen him do incredible, amazing things. And now people come and tell these men that Jesus resurrected from the dead, just as he had predicted, and they would not believe it, and they did not believe it. And Jesus is saying, where have you been? Do you not know who I am? He appears to them, and he rebukes them for their unbelief because they had not believed those who saw him after he had been raised. But as is typical within the Gospels, particularly Mark, the story doesn't end at the rebuke. He continues on, and he gives them a mission. Go, he tells them. Go and proclaim the Gospel to every creature. These guys who didn't believe, he's going to send them out. Remember, I guess it was a few weeks ago now, we talked about how their sorrow would be turned to great joy in the Gospel of John. It references this. These men who, they refuse to see it. They are blind to reality in the moment. And when they finally see it, when Jesus appears to them, now the rest of the story is going to be that they're going to go out and proclaim this message to the whole world, and no one's going to stop them. It's a story about belief. About belief and divine faithfulness, even in the midst of human weakness. That when those ladies came to the tomb, and Peter, when he ran, and John and others, as they followed, and they discovered that the tomb was empty, now this is a message they're going to proclaim to the rest of the world. That whoever believes, whoever's not hardened, whoever doesn't live in unbelief, and the one who believes, the one who fears his name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. The one who believes and is baptized will be delivered because God is a God of deliverance. And those who do not believe will be condemned because they have not accepted this message of death and resurrection. Now, I know everyone wants to know verse 17 and what that's all about. Right, it's always the question in Mark 16. These signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons, speak in new tongues, pick up serpents with their hands. They drink deadly poison. It will not hurt them. Don't go do that stuff. The signs will accompany them. It doesn't say they must accompany them. There are going to be people who believe who are able to do these things. And in fact, they did. Do you remember Paul being bitten by a snake and not dying? And some of his followers early on going out and healing people. This is the sort of thing he's talking about. And then it goes on to tell us this is how the story ends, at least in the Gospel of Mark, even though it's just the beginning. They did the very thing God asked them to do. They believed. They finally believed. And now they react to it. It says they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. We don't have time to talk about all the details surrounding all of that. But what, what I want to point out is that there will be those who believe that had these signs follow them, and they did. It doesn't mean you need to go tempt the Lord and try to pick up snakes and drink poison. Please, don't do that. It's not going to work out well for you. 
We have the message revealed. It has been confirmed to us by these signs already. And now it is our duty to live it, to accept it, and to live it, and to proclaim it to all that will hear. And the question in the end is really how will we react to this text? Because it's not the end, it's the beginning. It's a story that continues on. I remember sitting at my father's funeral, and there was a lot of pain and sorrow facing the finality of that moment, both for me and for the others who were around us. It seemed like the end. The worst possible scenario in the temporary life is a moment like that. But there's peace knowing that the end of life here is only the beginning of eternity. If you believe in the risen Savior, whatever is happening here, as hard, as as final as it may seem, it's only the beginning. The end of the temporary is hardly even the beginning of the eternal. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. So the question is, what will you do with Jesus? Believe Jesus in all of this, everything we experience here from beginning to end of this temporary life. Believe Jesus in all of this is only the beginning. An eternity of joy awaits. And that, brothers and sisters, is the good news. That's the good news we are called to. Not that we'll never have pain or suffering or death or any of those things here. That's not the good news. The good news is the hope of eternal life. That whatever's here is just the beginning of the story that will never end. As we surround the throne of God, we sing praises to Him forever with voices that won't go away from us like they do at a week of camp. They will always be strong and we will always be people, and there'll be no more parting, and we will always be together forever with the Lord. That's the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we call you to this morning. Can we help you now? Why don't you come? So we stand and we sing together.